today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Lots to talk about with Elliot Tepper, uh, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Uh, Paul Manafort, ex-campaign manager for Donald Trump, sentenced again to uh, another 43 months, I believe, uh, in jail, bringing his total up to seven and a half. We'll talk to that and uh, stuff happening on this side of the border as well. Elliot is with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. Before we get to the United States, I can't uh, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on SNC-Lavalin and the case with Jody Wilson-Raybould, and yesterday, uh, opposition uh, crying foul because uh, as soon as the meeting started with the Justice Committee, they shut it down and said, we're not dealing with any of this today, we're going to push it off until March 19th, which is when the Liberal budget drops, uh, and it will be behind closed doors. Uh, Is this good enough for Canadians? Is a budget going to distract them from all of this? Um, We're going to talk about the U.S. If you want to know distractions... Uh, the master distractor is Donald Trump. <laughs> this government could uh, is not probably the best at that. Uh, no, my own take on SNC-Lavalin, of course, focuses on the international dimension, which doesn't get as much attention as we get caught up in the details of he said, she said, and who's going to do what when. Um, my take on the SNC-Lavalin is that it has now become an internationalized issue. It's no longer a domestic issue only because the OECD right. has weighed in. Mm-hmm. And once they've done that, this goes beyond the New York Times and other papers around the world commenting with interest on Canada's domestic issues. This has now officially become of attention to an international organization which Canada helped co-found and which uh, under an anti-bribery component of that OECD, which we authored, helped author, we were co-authors of this. Mm-hmm. Of this, so the whole purpose of it was to say, if we all gather together, 44 states now that are advanced economies, if we agree that we will not take act, we will prevent our own um, companies, private companies, from doing bribery. It will reduce bribery internationally and globally, and that's win-win for everybody involved. And the OECD said under that, and again, we helped draft it, you cannot use job loss for your companies domestically as an excuse for um, not, being, uh, not having to report back to us under this anti-bribery convention. So uh, we are now in a situation where we are being forced to report back at the next meeting. I think it's in June. They meet four times a year in Paris, saying, okay, in terms of the technical and official terms, uh, are, you, are you living up to your international obligations? Mm-hmm. Would yeah. SNC-Lavalin even fit into that silo, considering past yeah. discrepancies? Yes. I mean, it, this was a little tiny footnote. Uh, uh, the term corruption is being used domestically, uh, on this scandal, uh, it's being called a scandal, and it's being called about corruption, the SNC, and what's going on on Parliament Hill. And it's indeed a severe political issue. But if you want to see corruption, look what SNC is charged with doing, hmm. allegedly, uh, in terms of Libya, $50 million bribe to the, you know, to the... So the, the, this is just a tiny footnote, but our definition domestically of what is corruption, I think, right. is, uh, is interesting. But... There's a second part to the SNC international implications for me, and it's, uh, it has to do with the fact that 
the international order, which has preserved peace and prosperity for 70 years, built around a lot of institutions, uh, including the EU, and that's now under we talk, I've been talking uh, a lot about Brexit. But all of the institutions that have sustained the international liberal order for so long have been threatened by populism and by the rise of nationalism. Mm -hmm. And the forces fighting that have traditionally been the U.S., the U.K., the EU, and they've all been weakened. We were among the very last pillars of support that had not been weakened, and SNC-Lavalin case will weaken us at a time when that uh, international order is under threat. Why does the Prime Minister not make the call and just put this all behind him? Why, do, why is he hitching his post to, to SNC-Lavalin? Of course, we know the Quebec connection. But, it, but at the end of the day, you know, many are now questioning whether the new Attorney General will do what the old one wouldn't do. So, so why not just make that call and, mo- and, and get that right off the table? Well, um, I, I'm trying scrupulously to avoid talking about domestic intricacies of politics, but I'll refer back to the OECD. We are bound by our signatory, it's a part of our law, part of our obligations, to follow what the OECD has set out under their anti-corruption uh, convention. Right. So, so we should we be, be doing able, it. We should we be, be doing it anyway. Do that? Yeah. And will Lametti be able to stay within the confines? It isn't a matter of domestics anymore. This is an international issue. Yeah. We can be named and shamed. So, going through the the intricacies of what we commit ourselves to. Ken Lametti, to answer your question, do what you just suggested, and I think that's doubtful. All right, let's move south of the border because we could be talking about this all day as well. Um, uh, obviously, Paul Manafort uh, sentenced for a second time um, uh, in regard to, uh, uh, and I guess it could have been a lot worse than, than what it was, but uh, two counts of conspiracy against the United States included a range of conduct from money laundering to unregistered lobbying, uh, second count related to witness tampering, uh, and then, of course, convicted of bank and tax fraud back in Virginia the week earlier, uh, 47 months there for a total of of uh, seven and a half years. And then they're talking about New York prosecutors announcing that there's 16 new charges, charges, including residential mortgage fraud. Uh, Many thought that uh, over and above the New York aspect of this, that for these, uh, for the seven and a half years of these two uh, court appearances, many thought many more surprised at that sentence for this man. That's they're surprised because the expectation was set by the Mueller (laughs) sentencing recommendation. Mm -hmm. That is, this is an offshoot of the Mueller report. He said, I'm sending this to the courts, and here's my sentencing recommendation based on the fact that Manafort originally agreed to work with us, and he apparently lied to us, and he violated the agreements. So we think the full scope of the law should be applied under these infractions, and that would give you 19 and a half to 28 years. And the first judge said, no, we think 47 months is, uh, is adequate. Anyway, it's now added up in a second court case. And as you just pointed out, immediately after that, these were federal cases, the state of New York uh, has said, we have our own 16-count uh, indictment. We want him in our court. And as uh, everybody is now trumpeting, the, the main the main focus is no matter what happens at the federal level, that is a pardon, right. which is uh, 
you know, why hasn't Manafort been more cooperative with Mueller and other investigators? Well, he thinks he's going to get pardoned. He cannot be pardoned if, if he's convicted under these 16 counts. So that's one of the primary implications of the new counts. Uh, so is there nothing more for him to add to the Mueller investigation? The Mueller investigation has pretty much washed their hands of this guy, correct? Well, we well, don't know oh. what he did or didn't say. Uh, we do know, apparently, that he immediately went to uh, the Trump White House through the Attorney General's office uh, to report on what Mueller was, was asking about so that the White House Trump administration knew what it is that uh, Mueller was curious about. And that uh, is part of the basis of, of by Mueller saying, hey, he, he's, he's deceived us all. So is, he, is Mueller done with him? Well, Mueller may have gotten information that we don't know about. One of the interesting things for me uh, which hasn't getting the attention perhaps it should be, is the nature of these charges. All of the attention has been on, will something come out showing that the co-chair of the Trump campaign was actually an active member of cooperating with a foreign power, with Russia, and we, we, there's evidence of that coming out, uh, that uh, he gave polling data to a, a Russian agent, an alleged Russian agent, so there may be some things that are hidden away in the Mueller report still on that basis. But to me, and separately, the charges brought, the kind and nature of the charges brought against Manafort, if you take a look at them, they too perhaps will be a worry to the Trump lawyers because they involve mortgage fraud, they involve um, tax Mm. evasion. Mm. All of these are things which potentially serve as models separately, quite apart from any... A conspiracy with a foreign power, uh, which was the focus of, of the Trump, of the Mueller investigation, but not the only focus. They can pursue anything they uncover. But the fact that there's a whole raft of financial charges that are being pursued at various court levels and were sent there by Mueller, I should think that alone would be a matter of some concern hmm. to the Trump lawyers. Do you think if Paul Manafort had to do this over again, he'd do it differently? He's Paul Manafort. Because <laughs> hmm. uh, he judges, seemed to be playing both sides against the other, thinking that the the president would would pardon right. him, uh, and obviously now uh, New York prosecutors announcing these other charges. Right. And will this affect his behavior going forward? Now that a pardon won't get him off the hook, right? Will he suddenly start becoming cooperative at some level and with some some sources? Uh, Could he use what's happening in New York as leverage? Uh, you know, now uh, I'm getting uh, prosecuted in New York. I want to reopen this and start over again. I mean, could, is that possible? I'm not sure whether Mueller is ready to reopen this because there's increasing signs that the Mueller report is about to be sent to the, not acting, but the actual newly confirmed uh, Attorney General, William Barr. So that investigation may be that phase of the investigation may be going uh, to some kind of conclusion and therefore into a different level. Uh, it was a couple of days ago, Nancy Pelosi, uh, right. House Speaker, said that, you know what, I'm not even going to chase this uh, impeachment right. thing anymore. It's just divisive. And, you know, in order to make it happen, you know, we, we need a majority that we just don't have at this point. It's right. got to be bipartisan. Uh, many thought that when she said that, that she had got wind of the Mueller report and perhaps it's not as damaging to Trump as what everybody thought it was. Did you put any weight in that? Well, she didn't say we're not going to pursue it anymore. 
<laughs> she said we're not right going to do it at this time yeah. unless we hear, as you suggested, these other th- things which, were, which would lead to it. No, one of the things in an earlier interview with her when she was coming back into power speaker, there were a lot of interviews with her, and she said, one thing I've learned in politics is how to count. Meaning, <laughs> votes. <laughs> meaning she knows where the votes are and where they're not. Even if she could get the votes necessary in the House, what the House does is drop a bill of particulars. That's what impeachment is. It's the Senate that then acts as a trial, and they have to convict or not. And there it's two-thirds. So 67 votes are needed in the Senate. And there's no way that 67 votes are there unless, unless there truly are crimes, uh, what's it, treason, bribery, high crimes, and misdemeanors. That's the clause under which that could go to the Senate. If there is something that reaches that level, yes, uh, we know that in the past, Republican elders went to Richard Nixon and said, from the Senate, saying, you better not let this come to a vote, sir, and he resigned. So um, at the moment, she's saying, there's no way I've got the votes on this uh, from what we currently know. But, uh, Scott, I think there's a separate issue here, and it's, again, one that I, I don't think gets nearly the attention it deserves. The Democrats, as a party, are right on the edge of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. The party is splitting in all kinds of yeah, ways. Yeah. They've got, I don't know, 20, 24 potential candidates. Uh, some of their people who will lose will then you know, say, I don't want to. I, I, my people are going to stay home. They're not going to vote. Yeah. Uh, and there's, you know, when you've got 20, <laughs> 24 candidates, that's a lot of people who might stay home. The only glue that holds this party together, and there's a big split between what's being called the progressive wing and the moderate centrist. And remember, in terms of votes, the reason Nancy Pelosi is currently speaker again is the Democrats flipped a lot of suburban Republican seats, which could be in jeopardy if that party's progressive wing goes to war with the, with the moderate and suburban wings. So, so if they go for purity instead of power, then this... So how is she going to manage as the leader of the party, which she is until there's a nominee selected uh, to, for president, how is she going to hold the party together? There's only one thing they agree on. She can say, okay, the fighting is over. We've got to get together because our goal is to go to the polls, get our people to the polls to defeat Donald Trump. Uh, I was about to ask you, do you think this is a turning point for the Democrats in the sense that they've stopped focusing on the trials and tribulations, which are obvious, of Donald Trump, and instead started to focus inward on who they're going to put uh, up against him? Or is it a case of it's not really a turning point, it's just a display of divisiveness? This was my my suggestion as to why she's talking the way she is. they are of necessity going to turn inward. The, the race to, uh, to become the leader of the Democratic Party by becoming the nominee against uh, a Republican who is very vulnerable. Donald Trump is very vulnerable, so the race is wide open. You know, why not me? And why not a mayor of South Bend, Indiana, or a governor of a state? Or you know, Everybody's running, including Beto O'Rourke now. So, yeah. But the, the ideological threat there as well, because there's already talk of uh, some part of the progressive wing is going to start, they're threatening this, of running against Democrats in the primaries, Democrats in the primaries that are not suitably uh, ideologically coherent for them. 
So there's a definite possibility that this party will not be able to cohere. They will not come up with a candidate strong enough to defeat Donald Trump. So uh, we just had Liz Cheney, one of the leaders of the Republicans in the House, go on air and say, the Democrats have been in power majority for two months, and they are the party of anti-Semitism, of infanticide, and socialism. This is potent. Yeah. This is very potent. Yeah, they're very much trying to point, they're right. very much trying to yep. paint the divisiveness in the Democratic Party as a rise in socialism. Yes. And, and, and especially with what's happened in Venezuela and such. Sorry, yep. go ahead. And, and, and create the, so it's a wonderful slogan because it creates divisions further within the Democrats and it unites the, the base and activates the Republican base. These are culture wars now. Whatever happened to, you know, Medicare and, and clean air and clean water, uh, good jobs, all that goes out the window if this is a culture wars, a culture wars uh, election in the looming. So if the economy holds, Scott, and if these many, many legal perils for the president don't catch up with him between now and mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the November 2020 election date, the Republicans stand in good shape. Yeah, it's, it, it seems that uh, the Democrats are almost having very similar issues to what the NDP party is having in Canada in the sense that they're fighting between sort of a, an extreme left-wing ideology and how to bring the party into the mainstream in order to get enough votes to, to succeed. Well, the one key difference, of course, is that the Democrats are the mainstream. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they've held the president. You know, there's only two major parties there. Yeah. And uh, the equivalent of the Green Party in the U.S., took just enough votes, it's argued, away from Hillary Clinton in key states, just enough to uh, allow Trump his uh, electoral fluke. So the, the game is afoot. Has Trump calmed down a bit in the last few months, do you think, since, uh, since the Dems took control of the House? Calm down. I think or have we just got used to him? This is one of the one of the concerns all along has been, and this is a cliche now in the, in the news. You cannot normalize this behavior. Yeah, the kinds of things that we've come to see from him day to day to day, the kinds of behavior that would eliminate any other politician from contention, and possibly put them in legal jeopardy, uh, it's just become normalized. Something that that would be the news cycle for days and months and weeks and subject to investigations in the House or the Senate, it, it gets washed away by the next day's uh, statements. So he has no reason to calm down. It's working for him. Hmm. Do you think the pendulum will swing back, or is that the new normal? Well, that's why we have elections. Yeah, good point. This is America's capacity for renewal. Um, right now, again, if the economy holds and if the legal issues don't catch up with Trump, um, He's sitting in a fairly good position for re-election. Also, he's far better prepared. The electoral machinery and the finances are much, much greater this time for the Republicans and for Trump than they were when he actually got elected last time. Good point. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, always a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.